would have conversations about the scars being a reflection of healing. And at that time, like I would tell her, and it's cool that we're doing this podcast, but I would tell her like, you are going to have opportunities when people see your scars to like help and influence. There's no, you can't ignore the scars on somebody's arms. They, they scream out that there has been trauma in the past. And her having that opportunity with someone that she really loved and cared about to help him parent his daughter through that. Welcome to the Psychology of Self-Injury podcast, a resource for parents, professionals, and people with lived experience. I'm your host, Dr. Nicholas Westers, clinical psychologist at Children's Health, associate professor at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas, and chair of the Media and Communications Committee of the International Society for the Study of Self-Injury, or ISSS or simply I-triple-S. I met Ralph and his daughter Katie about a year and a half ago through my wife. My wife has been close friends with Ralph for many years before Katie was even born. When they were visiting us in early 2022, when the podcast had just begun season two and we were 22 episodes in, Ralph was asking my wife about my work, and she brought up the podcast. Ralph and Katie then shared with her that Katie had a long history of self-injury. I happened to walk up to them at the tail end of that conversation, and they noted that, understandably, it was not something they had shared with many people. We talked just a little bit more about it that day, but not in depth. Not knowing where they were in their journey or how comfortable they would be sharing their story publicly, I informally extended an invitation to participate in the podcast at some point if they ever felt ready whether separately or together as a father and daughter. Less than a month ago, Ralph and Katie visited again for the weekend. I again invited them to participate, and they said yes. So after we put my son to bed, Ralph and Katie joined me in my home office to record our first in-person podcast interview that wasn't done through Zoom or Skype. A few notes about today's episode, though. First, they mention a lot of people by name. To protect privacy, I've intentionally omitted the names of some of them including the names of a few of Katie's friends. And since Katie's mother was not part of our interview, I've omitted her name as well. I did so by muting the audio when a specific person is named. So when someone is speaking and it doesn't seem to make sense for a moment while you're listening, it's probably because that's a place where I muted someone's name. Second, prior to this interview, Ralph and Katie hadn't talked much about her history of self-injury. So a lot of our interview is me just sitting back and facilitating this conversation. Relatedly, you might hear a sense of irreverence at times toward the topics of self-injury and even suicide. By irreverence, I mean seemingly making light of serious topics, whether through laughter or sarcasm. It's not that these topics aren't taken seriously. It's just that sometimes people cope with anxiety and or tough topics through laughter and joking. Finally, with that in mind, parts of our interview may be difficult to hear. So if you're having a rough day, give us a pause and come back to listen when you're ready. We'll be here. Well, I am incredibly excited to have a couple of friends today on the podcast. Back early on when we started the podcast, I had interviewed a friend of mine who is a mother, and she talked about an experience of her child having self-injured. And a lot of research, actually, when they talk to parents of children who self-injure, very rarely do they include fathers. And it's really hard to get dads involved oftentimes in therapy. And that's not to say that they aren't always. I mean, I work with a lot of families whose dads are very much involved, but many times dads are, are not involved. So to find someone, to find a father that would be willing to 
share his experience, his perspective of his child, his daughter. Self-injury is so rare. But even rarer is the fact that we have Ralph's daughter right here, Katie. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) Willing to share her story of lived experience. And both Katie and Ralph haven't really talked to anyone about this other than me and maybe one or two other people, my wife. And so to have this forum and to kind of see how this organically develops as we talk through it, I'm really thankful that the two of you would be willing to put yourself out there. So thank you for doing that and being on the podcast today. I'm happy to be contributing. So generally, I like to ask people about what they did as a form of self-injury in general, what it was, Katie, how old you are now, how old you were when you first started self-injuring, what it was that you did and what you've done, and then what it was like for you as a father to learn and how that came about. And then what it was like for you, Katie, as a daughter, having this conversation with your dad. Hmm. I'm 21 now. When I first cut, I don't remember how old I was, but I just remember it was the summer of fourth grade. So maybe like nine or 10. I like didn't live with my dad. I lived with my mom. When she found out, he found out. So it wasn't really like something we talked about, I guess. Like I didn't confess it to you or anything like that. I was in trouble. It felt like whenever uh, she first found out. Yeah. Yeah. So I didn't find out that Katie was cutting or not cutting, but like self-injuring in the fourth grade until she was an adult and shared that with me. So I think she was in sixth grade when um, her mom found that she had cut and didn't have the best, I think, response, but called me and said, like, hey, you need to come get Katie. I think she was a little bit at the end. Her mom was a little bit at the end of a rope, like not knowing what to do. No, bit. we were like, whenever she found out, she was really upset. Like She, <laughs> yeah, um, wanna... she like yelled at me like uh, she sat me in the living room and she called my grandparents to come watch me because uh, she was just having a hard time, I guess, like being around me. And then she called you, I guess. Yeah. So I finally she house. called me and. It's a 30-minute drive to where they live, about a 25-minute drive to where they live. So it's a lot of time to think what is happening over there while I'm not there. And when Katie got into my car, I could tell that she seemed kind of spent emotionally. And I don't know if you remember this, Katie, but like I just told her, like, hey, we don't have to talk about this. Like, Let's just like go home and rest. She already had, like I think, a bandage on or something. And so we didn't even talk about it that night. I think there were a lot of questions I had. But I think I could just tell that my daughter was like not in a place to be able to continue to talk about this tonight. So we just went home and like put her to sleep. I know for me, I just felt, I think the unknown of not understanding, you know, why is my daughter hurting herself? She's bleeding. She's cutting herself. What is going on? Not knowing if she can even articulate, you know, any of those things. Yeah. And being really scared for her. You know, I think her mom and her mom shared this, would be afraid that Katie would accidentally cut herself too deep. I think seeing Katie's cuts, I realized she wasn't trying to kill herself. This was something different. But yeah, like that initial, I think having that drive and seeing Katie so spent, the initial shock that she was cutting was kind of overridden by the concern that like she's not in a place to be able to continue to talk about this right now. So I don't think we probably even had really serious conversations about it for a little bit. Like I tried to figure out what we should do to try to prevent it as much as we could. But as far as why are you cutting or what can we do? can't even remember having too many of those. can't remember either. There's only one specific memory that sticks out to me. I was in high school. I was like in a really bad place. Like we were just taking it one day at a time. I already had like a plan, like when I was going to kill myself. Like I had a specific date set. Going to school and you telling me that like you would stay home and just like with my pajamas, like scared that 
you would smell them because like not if I like if I was gonna come home like they you would get a call from school or something like that you know that's that's like the only conversation I really remember having yeah the conversations about cutting I think were really different at that point when she was younger I think most of them were revolved around like how do we prevent this and we're kind of getting off topic so I don't know if you want to ask so I think there was a fine balance between what can I do to prevent this and what can I do to help Katie kind of understand why she's cutting? We would go through her room and look for, I don't know if you could want to share like what you were using to cut. Mm-hmm. You sent me to a youth camp. And at the youth camp, you could spend like... It wasn't like, like you're cutting, you're going to this <laughs> no, youth no, camp. No. It was like, it was youth camp season. Yeah. It was <laughs> like, like that. cutting, go to youth no. camp. No. I went to a youth camp with Church Unlimited. They sold like little pencil sharpeners for like 25 cents. And I like bought like $5 worth. <laughs> and I like hit them all over like my like my bag and took them home. What's really interesting. <laughs> so I had a lot of pile up. What's really interesting I think about that is that I think most parents, I didn't know at the time. I think most parents don't realize that that is probably the most common thing that kids are using. Because sharpeners are so accessible. Yeah. Makeup sharpeners, pencil sharpeners. Well, like, you just need a screwdriver to screw out the blade. So it's like, it's nothing. You find that in the garage. Yeah. So that a kid would buy $5 worth of pencil sharpeners <laughs> and nobody at camp is like, you know, like there's probably not an awareness that like yeah. that is a signal that like maybe something's going on. Yeah. So like that a kid could buy $5 worth of sharpeners <laughs> yeah. and come home. But we would find, I don't know if you remember this, but her glasses case where she would keep her glasses would have, you know, four or five, six blades that she had taken off. I don't know what it must have felt like for you, but when she'd be at school, I'd be going under a pillow and looking. And I don't ever remember having a conversation and being like, Katie, I found these blades. I know what you're doing. No, I would just come home and they were gone. (laughs) She would just come home and they would not be there again. Yeah. One of the things we did for a little bit, and I think looking back on this, I'm not sure it was the most healthy way, but really it was like trying to figure out the balance between helping her figure out why she's injuring herself and as a parent trying to figure out how to reduce the opportunity. I think, again, like going back, hindsight being 2020, you realize kids have too much privacy. They don't have to cut home. They can cut in the bathroom. Like, But we took off your door for a little bit. Do you remember? Mm-hmm. So she didn't have as much privacy. And we would go through her room. She I knew, hated that. Yeah, I'm sure. Like, and I realized <laughs> that. Like, I, Looking back, I realized that was probably not a healthy response. But we're trying to balance the need for privacy and the need for like her being a, able to like feel autonomous and then also like provide supervision. Yeah, like so those were some of the responses. I think she got her door probably back pretty quickly. Yeah, it wasn't a long time. But even when she was healthy, like I'd still go through her room and still find blades. Like when she wasn't cutting and she seemed like she was doing okay. I, I still had some. There have been times like in college that I go out at like 10 p.m. Impulsively buy like a pack of razors from Home Depot or something. I take them and they like be in the back of my closet. And then I'll like some random day I'll get rid of them. And then a couple months later, I'll do it again. That's interesting. They never get used. I've probably wasted a lot of money just buying them and throwing them away. <laughs> throwing them away. That's interesting. <laughs> so you first cut when you were in fourth grade? No, I burned myself. And then when did you start cutting? I think probably later that year. I would cut on my shoulder first. And then like um, on my stomach. And then on my legs. Yeah. I didn't cut my arms some... for like until I was older, way older. Yeah, there were some cuts on legs. Yeah. Like maybe even graduated. No, because in high school, I think that first time, not in sixth grade, like the first time was on your arms. Yeah, you're right. And when was the most recent time? I think it was a year and a half ago. So it's been, it's been, um, I've, I've been like good for a long time. I was by myself. Like I was living by myself. 
I had a big fight with you. Isaiah was out of town. Like, I just felt very alone. I think it was a year and a half ago. It was like in November, December. Yeah, so Ralphie, you were telling me a little bit about this and your experience. I guess this was probably the most recent time, a year and a half ago. What that was like, you saw Katie and you. I think you had a conversation. This was a different time. Different time. So I think she's talking about a little bit later that fall. So this was the summer right before that. When I lived with Grandma? When you stayed with Grandma for a little bit. Yeah, so Katie can talk about like what happened. But Katie had come home and was not real happy about being home. And I don't think I understood the completeness of, oh, no, was it at Christmas time that you really cut yourself or was it summertime? It was summertime. Yeah, summertime. I don't know. There's this feeling of like not wanting to be home. Jordan and I have talked about this. My cousin, like who's also away from home, just that like it's hard for a parent to understand. Like my kid doesn't want to not be here because she doesn't love me or she doesn't want to be home. It's like she has a home somewhere else. Her home is not here. And I think also Corpus represents some conflict (laughs) for Katie, like in her upbringing. I still wasn't really talking to mom either. Yeah. Yeah. So she was staying with my mom. And at the time, I think Katie was also like, there was some things happening at work that she really wasn't happy about that made her feel really like just unhappy. And I think with me also, there was like some turmoil. And I don't think I understood like the gravity of how she was feeling. And I think that's one of the things that you learn and forget very quickly that you don't always know what they might be dealing with. So like when you get into a fight, you don't realize that you may be triggering something that will lead to self-harm. What's really hard about like even acknowledging that is to recognize that Katie is not cutting because of me. She's cutting for some other reason, like something that happens within her mind and emotions. But to feel like you were a catalyst to that happening. Did you feel like that? Well, I was. We had gotten into a big fight. She had gone back home to my mom's and she cut herself a lot. Yeah, her arm was, it was bad. I had never like cut that deep in high school. But like, I think as I got older, like I could take the pain a little bit more. This one time, I remember like I cut the highest I had ever cut. I saw like the blue. I felt like, like I saw the vein, but I didn't, I didn't nick it. But like, I saw it. It freaked me out. It freaked me out so bad. So like, I just like, Did I you called call you. me. I called you and then I drove over there. I she was called me out. and told me she had cut herself and I was like, come home. She came home. We sat at the kitchen table and I'm not sure if I had everything I needed or did I tell you what to buy? No, we drove to CVS together. We drove to CVS together. It was like one in the morning. Like yeah. it was late. We drove to CVS together and I bought, you know, some nonstick bandages and some gauze to wrap, some ointment and things to clean her up. We just probably, I guess, cried at the table. Like that was the first time. And this came up just the other day. We were kind of talking about this or just today or yesterday that I thought like, All of the other times, Katie was taking care of her own wounds by herself. Mm. You know, I didn't always know when she had cut. And it made me really sad that she had to do that by herself. This was the only time that I've ever taken care of her. And I remember like holding her arm and seeing her arm, how significant these injuries were. Just really breaking my heart. Like, you know, but like at the same time, feeling like I'm taking care of my daughter. And I hadn't been able to do that in the past. We had tried to figure out. I think we did other things to try to get her mind off of the deep depression that she was struggling with. We read books at, at when she was thinking about committing suicide. Yeah, we played chess. I just wanted to get one day at a time. So she started reading Stephen King because the books were long. So I just thought like, okay, like she's going to start a book. She doesn't like to not finish books. So that would take a couple of days. We read a series of three, or four, three books. Yeah. We started playing chess every single day. We started listening to 
I tell my friends, Ken, I Kendrick Lamar, Stephen King, Chess, Chance like, the Rapper, Chance the Rapper <laughs> those guys like saved my daughter. We would talk about the music in depth over and over. Taking care of these wounds felt like the first time I was taking care of her physically during this whole thing. Like she had always done it on her own. I don't even realize that like I wasn't part of that process. What was that like for you to have your dad care for your wounds? It was sad because like I love, I'm like really close to my dad and I just like felt bad that he had to see me that way because I'm sure it's not easy seeing your child with injuries like that. I just felt sad that I was making my dad sad. <laughs> I remember your face like looking at me at the table. It's just like, I don't know. I don't want to make my dad sad. That was the biggest thing. Even now, the reason I feel upset is because I don't know. I love my dad. I don't want to make him upset. <laughs> yeah, it's so weird because like, Katie processing this from a different lens, you know, I'm feeling so helpless because I know that this is an area where we can talk and I can try to provide an escape. But at the end of the day, like when Katie is thinking about self-harm in that moment, it's a fight that she has to fight on her own, knowing that in the moment, that's not, I can help before I can help after. So I think Katie looking at it from her end, she's like sad because she feels like she's hurting. From my end, I'm sad because I feel like I'm a little bit helpless in those moments. Like I can't protect her from that. Yeah. So I think it's interesting because I don't think I've ever felt hurt or like personal hurt. It's always been concern. And I think Katie like doesn't want me to I think maybe that's why I think that because I think mom really felt like, man, she's cutting because like of me. She's doing this to get back at me Mm. or something like that. I think is how she felt. What's that like to have that experience? I don't know. I think at the beginning, like a big, Part of it was her, not not like to blame her, but like she was very like, uh, I want you to be like a different daughter than who you are right now. And I think that's where it began a little bit. But looking back, I really think it was all like academic stuff. Sixth grade was when I got my first B. Up until then, it was all straight A's. And I was like, oh, my gosh, like the world is going to end. Man, like, if I don't get good grades, like, I'm not going to go to college. I'm going to live under a bridge. I'm going to be homeless. She really did feel a lot of pressure that she had to get into college, like, so that she could do some things. It's funny, as parents, you're not realizing that you're creating pressure, but I used to tell the kids, like, hey, y'all are going to change the world one day. And Katie would tell me. That me up. Yeah, Katie would tell me (laughs) later, like, that felt like, what if I don't get into college? How am I going to change the world? So that created some pressure. I'm curious. And again, like, I apologize because... This conversation has not happened a whole lot, so I have questions too, (laughs) but I'm wondering, like, you were cutting all throughout, like, middle school and high school on and off. Did you have conversations with mom about it at all? Like, once you came to live with me, obviously, I was probably seeing it more than mom did. Did y'all have conversations after that, do you think? About cutting? About cutting. After I came to live with you? Right. Mm -mm. We haven't talked about it this whole time. Oh, wow. I don't think we've talked about it since I was, like, in middle school. Hmm. Yeah. My mom and I just recently got close. We like didn't talk to each other for two years after I graduated high school. But now like we're we don't speak in terms. <laughs> I know you said that you felt the pressure with grades in middle school, like sixth grade, but you were burning in yourself in fourth grade, so it started before then. It had to have been something else, right? Well, I'm wondering like what led you to burn in the first place and what did it do for you? Same thing with the cutting, like how did you come to decide to do that the first time and what what did it do for you? I don't remember where I read it. I think it was after I had the BlackBerry phone. It was like, I think when the first like iPhones were coming out. Mm-hmm. I read a One Direction fan fiction. Like I was just looking it up. They had mentioned self-harm in there. 
And I was like, this person is sad and they're self-harming. Like, I'm sad. Maybe I should, like, try this, I think, is what happened in my brain. The lighter was too hard. Like, it, it hurts. Like, you have to hold it there for a long time in order to, like, get what you're trying to get at. I think the other way was much easier. I started using, like, the ones from the showers. And, um... The razor? The razors, like, from showers? Mm-hmm. Okay. Man, it... I don't know. Like, and even now, I still feel this. Like, it just feels, like, kind of nice to have something hurt. And if I'm, like, in a situation where I don't feel good, or at a restaurant or something, and, like, mom is being weird, I can squeeze my arm, or I can, like, press on my leg, and it hurts, and, like, I feel better. She's used rubber bands, I think, rubber bands, for a little while, like, trying to Mm -hmm. use rubber bands to, like, snap yourself or something. Yeah. But even now, like... They're already healed, so it's different. You know, it goes across your arm. So if you pull your arm, pinch your skin, they stretch. And sometimes they would start to bleed again. In bad situations or where I didn't feel comfortable, it always made me feel better. I felt more in control, I guess. I don't know. Even if, like, I feel bad about myself, I can do something to... If I feel bad about myself and I can, like, punish myself in a way or, like, bring pain to myself in a way, it feels like I'm doing something good or uh, productive. I guess. <laughs> it, it sounds like you were saying that you felt like the cutting was going to be a catalyst to feeling doing something to feel better later. No. No? No, it just felt better. It just felt good. It just felt good to be like, man, I'm the worst. And like, I am doing something about it. Mm. You know? So doing something that was in line with how you were viewing yourself in that moment. Mm. Like no one else is doing anything about the way that I am. But like, I'm doing something about the way I am. I'm hurting for it. And that's a good thing. I think. I know there's research that talks about how self-criticism, higher levels of self-criticism, those who are that self-critical have a higher pain tolerance and higher threshold for pain and are more willing to endure pain and get relief that way emotionally than those who aren't as self-critical. It's connected, huh? For many people. Would you describe yourself as self-critical? No, I don't think so. Maybe back then. What about like judging your performance in like school or friends or work or anything like that? Like that? Yeah, I guess I'm hard on myself. But it's weird because I, I feel like I don't do anything about it very often. It's not super important. Yeah, you know, I think sometimes it's helpful for people to understand or everyone is a different reason. And for you, going back in fourth grade, you read some fan fiction, One Direction fan fiction. I remember okay. very specifically. I, I remember that summer very specifically. So looking back, when your dad first found out, he came and picked you up and you had that long drive. That whole time, that drive, your dad's initial reaction, and when you got there and I guess the next day, do you remember anything in particular that was especially helpful that your dad did or said? We didn't talk at all on the ride home, I don't think. I didn't say anything. Mm -mm. Yeah, I think the goal was just to get her home and get her rested. But what would you say, like, overall made, made it easier, like, dealing with that stuff with me rather than mom? First, you weren't yelling. I think the yelling like made it really feel like, like man, I'm in big trouble, <laughs> you know, I guess. Yeah, I think this instinct was discipline will stop this. So Katie, yeah, got in trouble. Yeah, she took away all my stuff. I couldn't write or anything, like no like journal or diary or anything like that. I don't know. You treated it like there was something that needed to be fixed. Like there was an issue there that we could fix rather than just, this is bad. You cannot do that. Yeah, I think a parent's natural reaction, I remember going to counseling with Katie and the counselor describing this is that when like a parent sees a kid that is about to cross the road into a busy street, their concern is not to make sure they respond the correct way. They're just grabbing them to protect them, which initial response initially like that makes a lot of sense. 
But I think that pretty quickly, I think I realized Katie wasn't doing something that she was could control or not control. This wasn't, I'm going to do this to get back my parents. Or I'm going to, if I can stop because I want to stop. I think I recognized it pretty quickly, like that I can't talk her out of doing this. So I think I realized it's unfair to Katie to treat her in a way that, and it's weird because this almost sounds wrong, but to make her seem like you are responsible for this. Because obviously, like, I want to empower her to not do it. But I recognize that, like, if she could not, like, if she could keep herself from doing it, she would. Mm. So I didn't discipline her. I think there were times when we... I don't know if I would have. What if what? Time. There were times that I wanted to do it, even though I didn't really feel the urge. Mm-hmm. Like, it was a good habit or something. Right. Like, so you're saying, like, you don't know if you could have stopped even if you wanted to stop? No, I think even if I could have stopped or didn't need to anymore, I would have tried to make myself do it. Mm. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I think it was try to try to be patient, you know, with her. Like, this isn't the problem we're going to solve overnight. And I think we probably had conversations about... I do remember having some conversations about how does this make you feel? Me and Katie did something when she was young. And we continued, I think, to do it probably in middle school. I don't know if we continued to do it in high school. Are you talking about, like, there's going to be a time when you hate me? But No, oh. but we did that too. Like, <laughs> we would lie back to back. And Katie would be able to share how she might be feeling. And the rule was I wasn't allowed to ask questions or talk. She was the only one allowed to talk. And then when we weren't back to back anymore, that was the end of the conversation. I couldn't bring it up later. We did that when she was younger in elementary school. And I remember her sharing some things that she was really afraid to share. I think we tried to like create some safe spaces for her to be able to talk about like why she was feeling a certain way. And we did go to counseling and stuff like that. I think that helped a lot because I couldn't talk to mom about like anything I was feeling. I don't think she's very like a defensive, insecure lady. I think there was no safe space to talk. It's hard not to be able to talk about that stuff, I guess. Or it helps to be able to talk about it anyway. Your description of as a parent wanting to grab your child out of traffic and yelling and screaming, not because you're so much concerned about their feelings, but because of their physical safety. That's a good analogy because I know a lot of parents, unfortunately, they respond with punishment when they first learn that their child is self-injuring. I mean, maybe it helps some. There's probably some young people that, that that's a helpful response from parents. But from my experience, when I have seen kids who self-injure to punish themselves get punished for having punished themselves, that goes deeper. You know, that's a harder experience to have. I never thought about it like that. I'll be honest. I still feel like I don't know 100% the reason why. I don't know. I never tried to figure it out or dig deeper. It was just like, maybe I can put this behind me. Well, the two of you just referenced going to counseling. Was it just the two of you that went together or did anyone else go? Did Mo go? Mm-mm. We went together? I thought it was just me. I just went the first time. Yeah. The real significant thing, I remember the first time like I went together and she's asking, this might be like a technique that they teach y'all, but she's like, what I'm assuming is drawing like a family tree to figure out who Katie is connected to, right? Mm-hmm. So she's asking, who lives at your mom's? What do you call them? I don't know if you remember this. I remember drawing. Yeah. Well, <laughs> at this counselor, she asked, who lives at your dad? And she's like, well, it's just my dad. Or maybe Sarah was there at the time, like my ex-wife. And she said, like, what do you call Sarah? What do you call your dad? And she was like, father. And, <laughs> yeah. and she asked, like, what do you call him when you're not mad at him? Oh, my gosh. You remember? Uh, father. And she was like, I always call him father. That's what she <laughs> called me all the time. But Katie went to counseling. I do remember her, and this was true all the way through probably middle of high school. No, I would say probably early on in high school when her mom really stopped being part of how we were addressing this situation, is that her mom was really against any kind of medication, like at an early age. I regret like not exploring that more. But her mom was really against medication. 
and did not want to be part of the counseling process. It didn't really go, wasn't engaged in the counseling too much. And I didn't go with her, but she was seeing a therapist. Even then, like it wasn't for a long, long time. And then you went back. I didn't want to go to counseling. They were deciding who I was supposed to live with. We had to talk to the judge in the courts. It was like, you can live with your dad, which is what I wanted, but you have to go to counseling or you can live with your mom. And I went back to live with my mom because I didn't want to do counseling like that badly. So like it was very brief, I think. Yeah. And then you went back to a counselor briefly. And then it was right around, I guess, her junior year when she was really considering suicide that we decided, let's see if we can get through the summer. But remember, let's talk to someone. Maybe let's get on medication. And that's when you started going to the person that was across from the HEB. We'd go upstairs. Uh, I don't, know if I don't think I remember. Yeah. And also we talked to her doctor. I don't remember talking to the doctor. I don't know if you remember, but he was saying that like something about the way the brain's connected and that when you are a little bit younger, like that freshman, sophomore year, that sometimes seeing past bad moments is difficult. Like it feels too abstract. But that like by your yeah. senior year, do you remember that conversation with him? No, but um, I'm sure you'll remember uh, in junior year, maybe that summer, like you said, okay, if I can make it to the end of this, then it'll all be over. Like it'll be okay. Yeah. And I think in those moments, it felt very sincere because imagining life without Katie is real difficult, you know, and it's something that because of her history, like that I've imagined a lot. Part of me wonders at the time, like, again, like we were buying time however we could. Mm -hmm. And she had just started counseling. We were just getting ready. Her doctor, not her counselor, but her doctor had said, let's put her on medication, see how she does. And that senior year, like... Man, it helped so much. It changed mm -hmm. everything. Yeah, that senior year, like, it changed turned everything. things around. Yeah. It wasn't just that, too. It was ADHD medication, too. So, like, I was able to make better grades. Yeah, I really feel like that Prozac changed my life. Yeah. When I'm off it for, like, a month, and, like, I have the next month, I can tell the difference, just how hard it is for me to think without thinking awful things. Yeah, it helped a lot. So when you were having suicidal thoughts, were you also self-injuring at the same time separately from that? Yes, but it was never because like I like it was close to death or anything like that. I've always felt like really two different things, self-injury and like wanting to commit suicide. What's really interesting about that is that um, I don't know if you remember this. It's weird because it really is so foggy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like that whole high school period. But Katie was a musician and she was playing a gig downtown, like at an art walk or something. You were playing with Seth. It was the Oz band from church. I remember. And Katie had cut herself pretty good the night before. So she performed. And right afterwards, we went to, I think, Macaroni Grill. Yeah. And it was me. Katie was sitting to my right. Mom and, and mom was like, they wanted to hospitalize her for them to like examine her and look, you know, observe her for a few days was concerned that Katie was trying to kill herself or that would on, what she would on accident. I remember like trying to communicate to them that y'all are seeing this from the outside because she did, at this time she wasn't going over all the time and sometimes would skip weekends and even summer times was not always there. And I knew that Katie was not trying to kill herself. We had had those conversations. And so I was trying to communicate to them, you know, me and Katie talked, she shared this, this is not her expression of I'm trying to kill myself, it didn't even feel like she was crying out because it wasn't like it was something we didn't know that was happening. It really felt like just something that Katie was working through. And again, from the outside looking in, like all I know is that my daughter's hurting herself, but I don't know why. But I remember trying to communicate to 
I know from the outside, from your perspective, what this looks like is she's trying to inch her way closer to suicide. But that does not feel like what Katie is telling me is happening. Yeah, so to kind of like back that up, I don't remember. It was later that the suicide conversations. And- yeah, I guess now that I'm thinking about it, I guess you, <laughs> I guess rationally you connect those two. But in my brain, it doesn't feel like those things have anything to do with each other, like at all. Why do you say that? I mean, I don't know. I guess for me, it wasn't that way. What's interesting is self-harm is not just like she had a plan for killing herself and it didn't involve cutting herself. I ask about that because in the field, there is debate. There are some people that consider them basically the same behavior. They conflate conflate the behavior because to try to differentiate the intent, like a plan versus, you know, someone's cutting or burning, that it's all on that same continuum. And so we should treat it as such. But from my experience in talking to you as well is that's usually most often not the case. And so to suggest that your cutting was related because you really wanted to kill yourself and we should treat it the same way as a suicide attempt, that can really invalidate a lot of people's experiences. And they're like, no, that's not what I was doing. That was oftentimes people self-injure to avoid acting on those kinds of thoughts as a way to cope with some of those thoughts and not go that way. So wondering what your experience was, because I know some people say it doesn't really matter because it's all the same. Yeah. I guess if there's a Venn diagram, like it makes sense that like I want to kill myself, but I can't or I also don't want to at the same time. So I'm going to do this instead because it's the closest I can get there. But it's still not a means to get there. Yeah, that's not the way you felt. Yeah, at all. Yeah. And so going to counseling the first time you were required to and then you went again later, was that was that a, was that also a requirement? Did you also have to No, I think it was voluntary. The okay. first time was with the court and yeah. like I will never forget, like after her last session, I forget the counselor's name, but she came down and she's like, Look, your daughter's been gone for a month and she won't talk to me. And she basically said she wants to live with her mom. So I was like, Okay, you know, like whatever Katie wants. On the way home, Katie was like, Looked at mom's gonna be mad if I come live here and I'm gonna have to go to counseling. But if I stay with mom, I'll just be able to see you as often as I can. And mom won't be mad. That's easier. Like, and I can stop going. She didn't not want to go to counseling. Man, that's so sad. Yeah. It was a tough time. But the second time, I think she was still in middle school. And it was in the summertime. And I feel like it was not for very long. I don't know why we stopped going to counseling. From what I recall, and I hate, I don't want to, I don't want to guess. But from what I remember, I really think it had something to do with not liking the therapist and i don't know if she wanted to put katie on medication or was advising it but that was when it was like no like she just wants to fix her with medication like we need somebody else but katie didn't start going to counseling again till high school do you remember anything in particular about counseling any of the experiences that you had that was helpful and unhelpful Mm -mm. brown room rug i just remember what the room looked like I guess no more drawing then, because I was yeah, older. You were older, man. And it's interesting that you don't remember, and I don't think you went very long. Mm-mm. It's interesting to me that you don't remember that part. And I'll be honest, I don't remember the counselor's name. I just remember that I would take my computer and I would work in the waiting room. She'd take you to the back. It would have been nice, though. I think father's always been really good about like I'm not going to badmouth your mom. She's not been kind to you sometimes, but I'm still not going to say bad things about her or like tarnish her reputation because she's your mom, and I shouldn't do that. I think it would have been nice to have an adult tell me like. Hey, like, that is not your fault, <laughs> right? You know, I really, like, wanted my mom to like me. I don't know. Maybe if I hadn't wanted that so badly, I could have just been like, all right, I'm going to go live with my dad and things are going to be better over there. Katie has shared with me some things that happened that made her feel like her mom wanted a different type of daughter. I remember specifically, like, Katie would come over on Sundays and she'd be dressed up head to toe in church clothes, frilly dress and, like, <laughs> nice shoes. 
before we would even hug, she would beeline to her room to get out of those clothes immediately. Yeah, and I remember Katie communicating the idea of her self-harming in fourth grade. You know, I don't know what it was connected to. I was in ballet. And my mom, like, made me do ballet. And it was fun, but then I wanted to quit. And I remember mom saying, like, yeah, like, if you quit, like, what am I going to tell people that you do? What are you going to do? And I was in the passenger seat of the Jeep, the black one. She, like, was in the driver's seat, and we were parked in front of the house. And she, like, slammed, like, my chest back to, like, passenger seat. I was just scared. Like, I didn't move. I wasn't saying anything. Then we just got out the car. Yeah, Katie didn't tell me this till she was already an adult. Finding out some of the things that happened at home, I think, made me feel like I wish I had known or been able to be more involved and then just her coming on the weekends and sometimes during the week. And I don't think, you know, there's trauma that's connected to your family. And I think that there was some trauma there that created some insecurities in Katie. You know, there's so many moving parts to figure out why somebody's doing what they're doing. Because I, I feel like, and I'm sure part of it is me. Katie loves me, sings my praises all the time, but I'm sure that I fed into the overwhelming pressure she felt. If I don't get into college, what, how am I going to be able to, you know, like I'm sure I was part of whatever trauma, there was pieces of me that led to that too, you know? We know that sometimes parents can be a trigger to some of the behaviors and they can, or maybe a possible contributor to it. But most importantly, they actually play a bigger role in changing the behavior. So they may have a negative role at first, but I think parents, and here we are, we have you as a father talking about how maybe you were supportive of Katie getting through this as opposed to maybe being part of one of the reasons Katie, thinking about your your mom and your dad, I guess more your your dad since we have him here, has he responded or done anything that's been helpful in you stopping self-injury? I mean, it's been a year and a half. What role has he had in you having stopped, if any? I don't know if I have. I don't know, because when we fight, like, I have a really hard time. I think sometimes, like, I idolize my dad a little bit, and so it makes it, like, whenever he disagrees with me, like, or something that I want to do, like, it makes me feel, like, really, I get really torn up about it, making him a upset or if he doesn't agree with me i'll say i haven't been mindful enough until maybe just this moment to be honest you nag me about my medication <laughs> i do <clears throat> yeah, i do and i think till maybe this moment i don't think i've realized that kids that have two parents that are both positive influences on their life and maybe like co-parent even as kids are getting older there's less pressure on me to be both understanding and the catalyst for change or like you know both getting after for like you know, I don't know, like making a bad decision at school and being the understanding one, right? Because when there's two parents, sometimes you serve different roles. And I think in this moment more than ever before, like I think I'm realizing that she doesn't have another voice that is accepting and it's okay to make mistakes and like being that voice. So when I'm getting after her, there's not another voice that's there to say like, hey, man, you made a mistake, you know, like that's so I think that that needs to change the way I approach Katie when she's struggling instead of piling on. Because I think more than that, at this point, she's an adult. She knows when she's making mistakes. Yeah, when when we were younger, it's like, I love you no matter what. I don't know. I know that my dad still loves me the same amount. But I think just not hearing it as much or like, hey, you did this crazy thing. I still love you. It's okay. Yeah. As you go into adults, like the mistakes you can make are a little bit more significant, you know? like, <laughs> yeah. And so I do think like there's been times I've been too hard on her, not realizing that I'm, and she's trying to like. But it's has, hard because you shouldn't have that amount of pressure, right? That's but, yeah, but fair. like if I'm the one that is the person she looks to for acceptance, for 
understanding for confirmation that like it's okay that I made this mistake. When the the response is something drastically different, I think that can be very hard. And I think there have been moments, especially like that Christmas when you came back, she was not looking forward to coming back. And I didn't know that she was harboring some of these sentiments. We talked about it. Like, you got to let me know. If I'm being too hard on you, you have to let me know so that I know like, okay, I need to ease up because she doesn't have another parent that is that opposite voice of like, hey, it's okay. You know, like you made a mistake, no big deal. Like, but I have a question like, so that what I've done to help you stop self-injury. And I don't know like that, that we connect it that way. But one of the things we've talked about a lot is that Katie is responsible for her mental health. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, I can't make sure she takes her medication. If she goes off her medication, I can't make sure she gets back on. She's an adult now. Like when she was a kid, I could I had more control. But if she's going to stop cutting, if she's going to like continue to take her medication and look for like healthy avenues to take care of herself, that she is responsible for that more than anybody else. I think that's what helped because now I feel like the issue is how do I make sure I don't get to that place where um, I know I will because once I'm there, like there's I can't get out. I, I feel like I can't get out at least because I'm like 21 and I can drive to the Home Depot and like I can do that myself. I guess now that I know like, oh, I can avoid getting there. Like I can do things that actively avoid me like ending up in a situation where I'm going to cut myself. I think the extent of the conversations we have right now are like... We've never, or at least me, I've never thought about it in terms of like, how do you stop cutting? (laughs) Still, yeah. I think the extent right now is have you refilled your medication, right? That is the real, like the times that she has really struggled as an adult have been purely connected to not getting her refills in time something happened with the company that i was like a telehealth thing Mm -hmm. and like i didn't have it for a month in the span of like those two months when i didn't have the medication i lost a job i wasn't getting out of bed i wasn't going to work stop school i stopped stopped going to school i failed a couple classes i didn't know any of this was going on yeah like (laughs) yeah didn't know yeah it definitely does make things harder so it feels like if i can if i can avoid that then i can avoid any of the huge issues yeah i don't think i ever ask her are you thinking about cutting or when's the last time you cut yeah and I don't know if I treat it as that's something that behind that's behind us, even though I know that. And I don't, I think Katie would talk about it as relapsing and being sober. I think she used those types of words. Hmm. I look at it as something that we're past. It doesn't feel like an ongoing battle. It feels like crisis. Like if something bad happens, the goal is, am I going to get so low that I start to cut and mm-hmm. like just go out of control? Yeah. It's like, it's yeah, I guess it is more like relapse and feeling okay rather than just all the time. How is it? Just a moment ago, you talked about how well, I don't know what I've done to stop self-injuring, especially now I can just run to the Home Depot to the store and get blades, but I don't. So what is it that you're doing instead? Like, what do you do to not? I don't have the urge I'm on the medication for the most part. If I feel bad, my go-to is not to uh, cut anymore. Mm-hmm. I think it's uh, not, not annoying you, but like concerned you sometimes. Like sometimes if I have like, we have serious conversations and I'm starting to feel really bad, I cover my face recent not recently but really it's just hiding like hiding yeah just like closing eyes tight and like squeezing till it goes away what happens is like i'm not gonna get out of bed i'm just gonna stay here and stare at the ceiling or stuff like that it doesn't feel like the go-to is cutting anymore for when i feel like really down in the past i think the way katie like it seemed was when she wasn't in a good place and especially when she was would go off her medication there was almost like an irresistible urge and now it feels Mm. like she has more willpower maybe awesome right like that's the way i think she's communicated to me like especially earlier when she was younger well before it was almost like a habit like if you start to feel stressed then you're gonna smoke cigarettes you know 
Like if I start to felt stressed, like even though I haven't cut in a while, that's usually what I go to. So, okay, I'm going to cut. But now that it's been like a year and a half, it feels like that's not my habit anymore. Hmm. I don't know. Like it's easier to cut when you just cut a month ago. I feel like the more time that has grown, like in between me and like my last, the last time I cut myself, the less it's on my mind. Which I guess makes sense. I like how you guys had talked about taking responsibility for your own emotions. Other people can influence them, but ultimately it's up to us how we feel about something as well as what we do behaviorally in response. So one tricky thing that has come up often with families is parents fearing if they were to implement a rule, a consequence, that that could derail their child into this emotional spiral where they would go to self-injure. And so some parents are like, well, I can't implement this rule or boundary or or consequence i'm curious what my dad thinks because like at the time my stepmom was living in the house and she's a psychologist i remember her like or maybe you told me that she felt like she had to walk on eggshells she felt like she couldn't discipline me she was like stepmom so i'm sure there was like other stuff going on yeah probably had like related to like her being my daughter too yeah Yeah. i probably wasn't great at allowing (laughs) somebody else to parent my kid you were never like that. Yeah, but I if think... I was going to get in trouble like that, like you laid down the law. <laughs> yeah, I think the kids looked at me as very strict. But I know looking back on Katie's upbringing, I felt probably too often, in my opinion, like I tried to talk her through discipline. There were some like swift disciplines for like big infractions. I'm not sure that I ever felt like I couldn't discipline, continue to parent her the way I was supposed to. I felt like I should be parenting her. Because she was cutting herself. That's not the way I was cutting. If I was like on my phone too late and you took away my phone, I didn't feel like I needed to cut or anything like that. I'm sure like for some kids, it's connected to that somehow. Like if I feel bad, I need to cut. But I didn't feel like if it was a disciplinary thing like that, that was yeah, that's not connected. I don't know that like, and maybe I did again, this is like some of it feels foggy. I think as parents, a lot of times you make some instinctual decisions for better or for worse. I think I did as good as I could with Katie, but I think a lot of the instinctual decisions ended up being good decisions. So but not that way for mom, right? It can't be that way for every parent. Right? Yeah, we've talked about this. Like some people have struggle to be parents and other people it feel it comes a little more naturally. But what I was going to say is that I don't remember thinking when Katie did cut that it had something to do with discipline. Like I don't remember ever going through that thought process. So I think there was probably something instinctual that I recognized, like when she gets in trouble, she doesn't wake up in the morning with cuts, Mm. right? And there was a moment really through sixth, seventh, eighth grade, I think, that we're checking her body. She'd get out of the shower, we'd check, she'd get dressed in her pajamas, and then we'd check her arms, check her legs, check her stomach. That's where like we found cuts. So do you remember like us doing that? I got to hear what your experience of that was. Like, yeah, that face looks like she did not like that. (laughs) No, yeah, it's very awkward because it's like, I didn't cut... Let me see. <laughs> you know? But yeah. I mean, like, I understood why. But, my, you know, my dad's so nice. Like, he cares about me so much. And, you know, not that, like, mom didn't care about me. But she's, like, very, uh, I think, like, uh, thinks about herself first. So she always thinks, if this happened, what did I do to cause this? I think with my dad, you didn't think like that, right? It was like, this happened. What, how was Katie feeling? What did Katie feel that led to this? Right? Yeah, and, and I think Katie are both like, and I are both like this. Like, we tend to be really empathetic. So I think I really was trying to look through Katie's lens. And like I said, I don't remember putting the dots together and saying like, oh, I'm disciplined her today. This week she didn't cut. So it doesn't have something to do with discipline. But I don't think I ever thought like that had something to do with it. So I don't think it influenced how I disciplined her. I don't think. Well, with the body checks, was that helpful for you? Or did that cause any more 
rifts between you and your parents? Or did it do anything at all? I just remember feeling like really upset. That kind of like, like not in your throat. Oh, I'm going to cry like upset. I didn't feel like Violet or anything. You're my parents. You know, you can do that if you want to. I don't think it was bad. I didn't even think about it. I haven't thought about it at all. <laughs> yeah. And I do remember finding cuts on her. And I remember very specifically, I don't know if Katie remembers this. That was never a like, it wasn't disappointment. It wasn't you're in trouble. It wasn't, oh, tonight you're sleeping with the door open. I think more often than not, the response was, hey, come here, let me hold you. Let me hug you. Let me love you. Because I recognized, again, like, she didn't have a whole lot of control over this. I had zero control over it. This doesn't disappoint me. This doesn't upset me. I'm not mad at you because you did this. Yeah, it wasn't bad. It just felt like if I'm going to cut myself, this is some, This is one of the consequences of those things. It's just like natural result, I think. Yeah. Well, you both have referenced youth camp, getting ready for church, and I know you both and your faith. I would love to understand, and from your perspective, each of you, how you make sense of your experience of self-injury spiritually. It wasn't just church. It was like a relationship with God. I remember being at Church of Hope, and there was like this one play they did. Like, they did like little plays. There was like red, hellish stuff on stage. Like, if you do stuff, you're going to end up affecting where you're going to be in the afterlife. I think figuring out that it wasn't a church thing, but it's like a relationship thing, actually, like, helped. When she was cutting, I think we were involved in church. She started playing music. At that time, like, I really felt if we could keep her involved, that was a good thing for her, involved in anything. God played a part for sure, but, like, I wasn't close to God at the time until, like, after I graduated high school. But we talked about things, like, there were places that God moved that, like, got me out of that, like, that kept me alive during that situation. Like God was there and he definitely had a hand, but I didn't know it until I had graduated already. Yeah, people who are not are not on a faith journey would say like it's pure coincidence. But I think we recognize that there were like some moving parts, too many moving parts that got her to the high school that she went to, into the band that she went to, and having a very close relationship with her band director. And I don't know if Katie wants to share about like when you got the award when you didn't think you were going to get an award. It was right around the time she was really seriously considering suicide. And yeah. Do you remember? Yeah, it's like an honor banquet that they have for all the band kids. There's like an honorable mention award. My Mr. Rosales gave it to me. The whole way home is so embarrassing because like my dad drove me and a couple friends there. So like they're in the backseat all watching me cry. Like I just couldn't understand why he gave it to me. I don't know. I just like I, I couldn't understand why um he gave it to me. I don't know. I just felt like I really didn't like... I don't know. I just... I still don't understand. <laughs> yeah. But her relationship with her band director was significant. And... That, like, really, like, changed things for me after that banquet. And, like, just getting that... Yeah. And I think this is important to share because you talked about, like, not having a whole lot of dads involved in the podcast. But I think... And like, again, I'm asking Katie questions because there are things that I know that you don't know. But, but Katie, if you can share about, like, when he asked you about self-harm so that you, he could figure out, like, mm. how to parent his child. Yeah. I had tried out for a drum major a couple times, and one of the times I tried out was after I had cut, so I, had, I was, like, conducting with a bandage on my arm. He had a daughter that was, like, a year or two under me in school, and she was dealing with depression and cutting. I remember, like, him, like, pulling me into the office and asking me, like, you don't have to answer. You don't have to, like, be involved in this conversation, but I'd like to ask you if you're willing to, like, share about it. You want to know why? Yeah. Why did you cut? I don't remember how like came up. Was her name? His daughter's name. She was cutting and like, he just didn't know why. He was like, is it because she's sad? 
I remember thinking like, man, he's so just like old guy, like, <laughs> you know, but he was like, is she sad? Is that why she's cutting? Like, is it the boy? Like, like is that what she's cutting? And I was like, no, I don't think so, sir. Like, I think it's way deeper than that, sir. <laughs> but yeah. And we had talked about how it like, it all comes full circle. And like, I still talk to Mr. Rosales and I'll say like, hey, how's your daughter doing? And he'll say, she's good. She just moved out. She's in college. She's happy. It's so nice. Yeah. I think it's cool that like, and we would talk about this. I, I mentioned to you that we would have conversations about the scars being a reflection of healing, not a reflection of bad stuff, but a reflection of a good thing that's happened. And at that time, like I would tell her, and it's cool that we're doing this podcast, but I would tell her like, you are going to have opportunities when people see your scars to like help and influence. There's no, you can't ignore the scars on somebody's arms. They, they scream out that there has been trauma in the past. And her having that opportunity with someone that she really loved and cared about to help him parent his daughter through that. I think it's significant that you mentioned like not a lot of dads are involved because Mr. Rosales, like, you know, I care about him too. That night at the awards banquet, he said like, I don't, I don't even remember this. I don't remember it as well as you do. He said like, I don't know who needs to hear this. Yeah, the story. He said something about, but we need you on the earth. We need you here. And I'm feeling like he's talking to Katie, you know, like, but he just felt moved. He's a believer and just felt moved to share this. I just think as a father, him seeing a child that he's close with in the band, recognizing his daughter's dealing with something and saying, like, I don't want to miss the opportunity to maybe gain some insight so I could help my daughter. Right. And I get emotional to think about Mr. Rosales because I think he was super influential on Katie's life. You know, another dad that said, I want to figure out, like, how do I take an active role in helping my daughter through this? I think as dads, it's probably harder, but, you know, for me, I didn't have a choice. You know, I'm the only parent, really. You know, she's living with me. Like, her mom's not responding to this in a great way. Like, I had to, you know, like, you have to figure out, like, what do we do to help her? But yeah, Mr. Rosal's, like, special place in our heart. We love him. Yeah. Katie, what did you tell him when he was asking about how he could support his own daughter? <laughs> it feels like such a long time ago. It's foggy, like, like my dad said. I remember telling him just... I guess some of the things that how mom and reacted to him, it was not good. Don't be like upset with her. She needs like you to support her. She doesn't need you like she she's already getting after herself. She's already punishing herself, you know, like just be her dad, I think would help. And your dad was actually mentioning about your scars and you had talked about trying out for drum major and having a bandage. We actually have done an entire episode on scarring. In our most recent episode, we talked a little bit about scarring and the meaning that people make of it and the experiences they have of it. I'd be curious to know what your experience has been with in your relationship with your scars, especially just hearing what your dad shared. Yeah. Recently, like I had a really good experience that turned it around. But up until then, I worked at like a restaurant as a waitress. People would write notes on the back of the checks like, hey, here's my number. If you're having trouble, like reach out to me. <laughs> Crazy. And my boss had told me like, hey, I need you to start wearing like long sleeves or like a band at work. It's really like messing up the atmosphere for our customers. And I was like, yeah, that makes sense. You, you shared, that? I was telling, yeah, you told me, <laughs> you shared that at the beginning of each semester. Yeah. You'd have people from your classes. Yeah, everyone's talking to me like, hey, if there's any, like if you need someone to talk to, like, I don't know, <laughs> you know, my lessons teacher saw the cuts on my arms and she told the head of the flute department of our studio, Dr. Sundberg. So what's happening is that I wasn't cutting, but I have keloids. So some of my scars look brand, like look really red, really like up, even though they're the same age as the other ones. I think it's because I cut them on top of the other ones. Dr. Sundberg came to me after like jury run-throughs and she was like, hey, like, 
Jessica told me this. And I was like, Dr. Somberg, I don't know if you're going to believe me, but these are these. I did not make these. And like I showed her, I didn't know they were keloids at the time. And she was like, oh, you know, my wife had a treatment, a surgery, and she has keloids. I think that's what you have. And I was like, maybe Dr. Sundberg, because like I haven't cut in like a year, I swear. <laughs> you know, she was like, yeah, I understand that you haven't cut in a while. You know, Jessica was just trying to look out for you. Yeah, that's probably what these are. And then she gave me like a list of some medications. She was like, this is what my wife uses to help with her keloids. Maybe you can use this to help with yours. She just wished me the best. We don't talk very often. We weren't very close. I remember leaving that and thinking like, man, that was cool. <laughs> you know? So what do you do with that? So she gives these list of recommendations of medicines that could help with the scarring. Does that mean you want to get rid of those or does no. that change your relationship with that? No, honestly, sometimes when people ask about them, like I really like it nowadays. Not when it's, I, I don't like it when people come up to me and they're like, hey, if you need help, if you need to talk to someone, I'm right There's here. There's a suicide hotline. Yeah, yeah. But I have a friend at work, Henry. The second day I met him, he was like, what's on your arm? And I was like, scars. And he was like, well, how'd you get them? Like a cat or something? And I was like, no, I used to cut myself. And he was like, no way. I'm like, going to just like time out. So mm-hmm. I think that's, I like that when people do that. And I think some Me people, too. I think some people like don't want to talk about their scars. I've asked people about their amputation or about a deformity or a handicap. And I've seen that people like it that you're treating them just like a regular person rather than having to like tip, so nice tip your to toe ask. around something. Yeah. Okay. I'm sure not everybody. I'm not like advising like mm-hmm. everybody to go out and ask people about their scars. But I can imagine that Katie not getting a response of, hey, do you need to talk to me? That you know, was the like- first time someone had talked about it that way to me. Like that was my age. He's like 19 or something. The second thing he asked was like, how old were you? If I can ask. I'm like, well, why'd you do it? If you're okay, like so talking about it. That's so interesting. I'm like, it really felt good to talk about it. It was not a super heavy thing. He was asking me a question because he wanted to know and I could tell him and it wasn't Sometimes when someone's like, hey, if you need help or like if you need to talk to me, it kind of it's not that way at all. But it kind of feels like they're looking down on you a little bit for some reason, I think. I don't know. I yeah, just said I can that. imagine like I don't look at Katie as weak. You know, like maybe she, that's how it feels. She's an adult. She's 21. She lives on her own. She pays all of her own bills. She doesn't ask me for money. Like she's completely responsible for her, her home life. She lives up here in North Texas. She's getting ready to move to Tennessee on her own. I look at my daughter and I think that she is strong, capable, independent. I've always tried to express to her like that's the way I view her. And so I don't look at the scars as a weakness or a sign of a deficiency or anything. But I can imagine that everybody else looking at you like you need to be coddled or something, mm-hmm. you know, could be frustrating. Yeah, yeah, it's messed up. Have you ever said to them like, I'm fine or like this was old? Or, I think ever- I would now, but like two years ago, I was not. I was a little less, hey, <laughs> you know, than I am now. But um, that time that I was off the medication and like I lost my job, did real bad in school. The next year I was in choir and there was this girl named, she would come with cuts, not open cuts. But fresh. Like, fresh, fresh. Like you could tell that like she just did them like a day or two before. I didn't like say anything to her. We would like invite her out and she wouldn't want to come. And like we would text her, like she wouldn't respond. And I just told our director like, hey, last year when I stopped coming to class and like you flunked me, <laughs> you know? It wasn't because I didn't care about the class. I was going through stuff. I think it might be in the same place. Just say hi. Just go talk to her or something like that. I don't think she listened to me. I think she just called the school and said like, hey, can the counselors go like reach out to I don't think she actually talked to it. Yeah, I feel like that. I don't know. That's messed up. <laughs> but it's messed up to just like, hey, if you're here. I assume it, something's wrong. I don't know. Just to feel like something so like crazy, like you have the power to like 
I mean, obviously, like, I don't want to say, like, you don't have, obviously, you can change someone's life just by, like, going up and reaching out to them. But I don't like the assumption that I can help you. Like, I can get you out of this. Yeah. Talk to me. I don't know. It just feels kind of weird for some reason. Yeah, that's interesting. And I don't even know if that's something that someone can promise. Mm-hmm. They themselves, which actually, I think with parents, that's very relevant because I think parents are like, as a parent, I am the one to be able to help my child in this. And sometimes they're not. There's probably not a like an answer that you have, but in your research and in your practice, do you think that people who have he- who have scars that are healed, and do you feel like they want to be just ignored and not it be not a topic of conversation? Maybe Katie can answer this too, because obviously she didn't like some people mentioning them, but she had a real healthy conversation with somebody at work. Do you think people want to be able to talk about it? Yeah. yeah what do you think? Yeah, I love it, Henry. If everyone asked me like that, I would be fine. Yeah. yeah, actually, I would like it, I think, even. There was a girl at Sonic who... Sometimes I wear shorts and I'm like, man, I wish somebody would ask me about this. There was a girl <laughs> at Sonic who had cuts on her arm. I noticed them. And I've been to the Sonic a couple of times. And most of the time, like, I just don't even say anything. She is one that, like, she doesn't wear long sleeves. I mean, it's cold in those places. If you want to wear a hoodie and cover your arms, you can't, you know. So she doesn't care that people see. But her arms look identical to Katie. So one day I was like, hey, my daughter, my daughter's arm looks just like your, your arm. And she lives up in Denver. She's going to school, but like she's in a really good place. Like she's healthy and happy. What's one of the things Katie and I have talked about? The goal of life is not career. It's not a job. It's not money. It's like the goal for her, for us. And really, I think now I think like our whole family and everybody is healthy and happy. Like that's really the goal. But I told her like she's healthy and happy. She's doing great. Like I just want to let you know. And she's like, thanks. You know, like this kid, like you could tell these were not fresh scars. And for somebody, for a parent who had a kid that cuts, you know, like. Or if you're talk, looking at fresh scars, you're like, you can you can see how old these scars. Like, now she might be cutting somewhere else, but she's like, thanks for that. Like, and that was the end of the conversation. You know, like I took my food. And I would love on. to hear that. I bet that was good for her to hear. I bet it, she was happy when she it left. It just felt like car. even if you're in the middle of it, knowing that somebody else has navigated those waters and made it through to the other side, I would hope would be encouraging. I would imagine for some people, maybe it's discouraging. It's just nice to be able to talk about it. It feels like something you can't talk about, but it's like a very big part of who you are. You have to like just ignore that part. Wow. Do you yeah. wear long sleeves more often than not or like more often than short sleeves? Oh, I don't care. You don't care anymore? No. Did you? Yeah, maybe like two or three years ago, back at like at the beginning. But now that I'm like, I can, you know, at, at that time, I, like if someone asked me, like I would have been like, uh, like, <laughs> I was not in a good place. But now, Yeah. Which to answer your question, I know Katie jumped in and said, yeah, absolutely. You know, ask about it, talk about it. Well, two years ago that you would not have said that, it sounds like. So I think there isn't a one size fits all approach. It could be just everyone's journey is different. And we know anyone that's listening to this, I'm hoping they'll listen to our episode on the psychology of self-injury scarring in a recent episode where we talked about that. Like some people self-injure in order to cause the scarring. Others, I mean, it's part of their journey. They don't want to wear short sleeves or shorts because it would show their scars and they don't want to have conversations about it. Some do. And then the challenge becomes some parents may shame their child and say, you, you got to cover that up because we're going to such and such's house or, or you're going on did a job we, interview. Did we ever have any conversations about your scars or anything? No. Yeah, yeah I can't remember ever really thinking like that. I think there were some things like, scars. hey, like if someone asked you about this. Yeah, we would talk about like scars reference healing. You know, it could be an opportunity for you to talk about like where you're at now and how but you feel. But never like, hey, we're going to Thea's, cover your scars. Yeah, no, like yeah I don't think we ever really even talked about it. And again, like it's so weird because some parents... And I think parents, hopefully parents that are listening, you have to know where you're at. 
I think some parents know if they are struggling in parenting their children. And I think parents have to be self-aware and say like, man, I need help to like figure out how to parent my kid a little better. Again, like I don't remember ever talking to people about it, but I do remember feeling the instincts kicking in. I think not talking about the scars, not not even making a big deal about them. I don't remember like ever like touching your scars even. It's just part of my who my daughter is, you know, like if she had a scar on her, she has a little scar on her eyebrow, like I never touched that scar, you know, like, you know, like, so I don't think it, we ever even made a big deal about the fact that she had scars on her arms. I'm sure that there were times in going over to my, my sister's house or my mom's house when I knew she had fresh cuts that probably, I'm sure there were probably some insecure feelings about like, man, are they going to ask me? Are they going to ask Katie? Probably like just burying those and like, you know, we're just going to go over to grandma's. You're wearing, you know, like bandages on really? your arms. Even and, if they were like fresh? I guess I had the bandages. I don't ever remember us saying anything about like, hey, if they ask you or anything like that, as far as those. And I don't remember having a conversation about my, with my sister and mom saying like, hey, Katie has cuts all over her arms. Don't ask her or like anything like that. I think it was Good, just I like, wouldn't like that. That's how, that's, yeah. Yeah, I think it was just like, this is just part of Katie's journey and like, we're not going, it really didn't feel like a significant thing. And that's so good, I think. Yeah, for better or for worse, <laughs> yeah. but it really was good for Katie. Well, I think there's a difference between like fresh wounds, fresh cuts versus scars because some, there may we want to prevent infection, right. spreading mm-hmm. of you know germs. So I think there there is a time for bandages. Yeah, we try not to go to people's houses where there was like blood dripping. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> but that was a little crude. <laughs> yeah, there were, there were never any of those moments. Mm-hmm. Like, well, you said there was something that changed where then you were okay with your scars and you were like, I'm going to bear them wherever. What changed? Um, I don't know. It like stopped being like a, a bad thing, I guess. I guess just like treating it like a bad thing, it was a bad thing. But now it's it feels like a very like essential part of like me, I guess. So like if they went away, it would like be me going away. Which is why I'd asked about that medicine. If you were to put medicine on there, they would go away, possibly. No, the keloids can go away. (laughs) The keloids can go away just because like people think that they're fresh and they're not and it just causes me problems. (laughs) These old ones that are white that you can hardly even see, they're fine. They can stay where they are. Honestly, I feel like it gives me a little like character depth. (laughs) Before we ask my final question about what you would advise to parents, professionals and people with lived experience, is there anything you guys want to bring up that's important to your story that we haven't covered or questions or things you want to share as a father? It's nice having the conversation without the pressure of being concerned that Katie is talking about it will make her, like, for Mm -hmm. instance, I would imagine like a drug addict, like you want to talk about drugs around (laughs) them all the time, right? So I think being able to have the conversation away with Katie that there's no part of me that feels like she's going to go home itching to like grab a razor, right? Like, I don't, I don't feel like that. So I think it's kind of like, it's really nice to be able to like talk about it without the fear of Katie hurting herself. It's a nice feeling of feeling like, and I think I felt this is really like, this is a past thing that might come up at some time in the future, but it's in the past, but we don't talk about it. So having a conversation today feels nice and healthy. It feels like a healthy way to be able to talk about it. Yeah. It really feels like not case closed, but I guess like some type of closure almost yeah. that like, we're good now. <laughs> yeah. I guess that we're like, and we're safe. When I asked the two of you to do this, I didn't know where you were in your journey. So I didn't know if it, oh, was, if it, might have if it had been a year and a half ago or if it was just last week. I didn't know when I asked you. So I, mm. I'm glad I asked you and I'm glad it's nice to hear where you are. And Me too. I didn't realize until we talked about it that 
it was had been that long since there was a time like when I was counting the like the months when had it been since I had last cut but like I haven't thought about it in so long I didn't realize it'd been a year and a half it's awesome yeah you know it's interesting we've probably it might have been a year and a half that we even talked about it for the first time like I'm not sure when you met Katie but it was probably a, a, a little more than a year ago I think no, a year to the date. Oh, maybe a year, right exactly around a year. Cause this exact same bit. work April. event was happening. Yeah. 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 So it might have been probably a little bit before April. I think maybe like March maybe of last year that we met. Because my good friend passed away yeah. around April. Mm. So, but what I was saying is like we have circled around doing this podcast for a year now. <laughs> and, you know, like for me and Katie, it was really wasn't, it wasn't like we hadn't really thought about it or talked about it. There was no apprehension in doing it. But And Katie and I talk about this so much. All of the moving parts really seeing God's hand of providence involved. And so it could have been that right now is a better time for you than mm-hmm. a year ago might it's, have been. If, if we had done it a year ago, like it might have, I might have gone to sleep thinking about it and just it rolling around in my mind. Yeah. That's powerful. I'm oh. so happy. I feel like I learned things. Yeah, I'm happy <laughs> too. You, you think that a conversation like this, that the emotion you're feeling while you're having this conversation is not like joy, but I do too. I feel yeah, like happy. I feel good. Yeah. Yeah, and I know these conversations can be hard, and so I never pressure anyone. I try not to pressure anyone to be a part of this, whether they're a researcher and they're sharing. The two of us uh, like to talk, so. <laughs> no, I, I appreciate it, and when I invited you a little over a year ago, I wanted to check in. I don't know. It was like maybe a few months ago, a couple months ago, and I was like, I'm not going to keep pushing it, but. Yeah, maybe- you sent a group text, and I think. We didn't even, like, no response. Yeah, like you met was the next one to respond. <laughs> yeah, like, there was no response in the group message. I think you sent it just to me and Katie. Yeah, I just sent it to oh. the two of you. And, well, like, we legit, neither one of us responded to you. And so I didn't respond to that because, in my mind, that was like, all right, they're not ready to talk about it. So I'm not going to press it any further. And then when you guys were here just a couple days ago, I was I like, I was well, not just... expecting last night. Katie was like, let's just do it tomorrow. Well, like, or okay. wasn't thinking yeah. that either. I like the winging it. Yeah, no, <laughs> but... me too, me too. Well, based on our conversation today, let's start with parents. Katie, what would you recommend to parents? You said you were going to ask that question. It's hard to tell a parent, like your kid doesn't have control over it. You've got to do like the hard work. But I really feel like it wasn't me who like really did anything to to save myself in that situation. I feel like it was my dad really specifically in that time. Hey, let's do this thing start a book that's going to take three days hey let's start this really good album and think about it that's going to take like a week or like let's start playing chess this will like take away some time just like really going at it day by day like literally not even thinking like what is going to happen next week at the worst time like really what kept me there and it feels so like superficial but it really was just like distractions from what, what i wanted to do i don't have any advice for people who are going through it what if it was mr <laughs> rosales asking you Today, when he asked you, you were in high school, but if you were asking today, like, what do I, how do I love my daughter through this? What would you tell Mr. Rosales today? Specifically self-injury, not necessarily suicidal thoughts. Mm. I guess just hugging on. And my dad's not like this, but I think for, especially like in Corpus, like we're all like Mexican. It's like not the easiest to just like share your feelings and be like, hey, I love you. I love you so much. I love you no matter what. I know he had a hard time doing that with just like, I guess, to love on your kid and make sure that your kid knows you love them no matter what. My dad was the only person, like, I knew. My dad would say things before, like, this happened. There's going to be a time when we go through, like, really tough things, and I love you no matter what. And I think whenever I got there, I knew that my dad loved me. That phrase was a fact rather than, like, something that could change because he had prepared me for that before it happened. 
So I think even like maybe if your kid is in a good place, like when they're younger, if you prepare them, like knowing like that the worst could come when it gets there, maybe just love your kid, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I made you cry. You make me cry. <laughs> As a father, what would you recommend to parents? Yeah, so I think specifically to dads, I would say that too often we view our role as being the one to teach our kids to do specific things. I'll leave the other thing to their mom. You know, like, so I need to teach them how to be strong and work through your emotions and like not let, you know, let not be swayed and go to work every day. Like you look at your role sometimes as being the one to teach them to be tough. And I think kids are impacted by seeing you be vulnerable. Nobody likes it, right? Like vulnerability isn't, oh, I love the way this makes me feel like it. Nobody likes that, right? Like it's hard to be vulnerable. You always feel pretty good afterwards. Nobody likes to be be vulnerable. And I think sometimes for some dads, just embracing your kid and telling them you love them, that does seem like for some dads a really vulnerable moment that they don't like. My dad hugged on me and he loved me. I was telling Katie, like I saw my dad cry growing up and share his feelings. And so I was fortunate that I saw a man be that way, emotionally intelligent and connected. So I would say like, especially for dads, that's not always how we are instinctively. I think it's important that dads be vulnerable with their kids. Like, I love you. Katie talks about like, we really would talk, I would tell her like specifically, there's nothing you can do to make me love you more than I love you right now. And I would tell her specifically right after that, there's nothing you could ever do that would make me love you less. You're always at, you're already at 100%. You'll never be at less than that. Yeah. And there was no one else where it felt like a fact. I don't know. Maybe I could do something and my grandma wouldn't love me anymore. Maybe I could do something and my mom wouldn't love me anymore. But it was never like that with you. Like I knew like no matter what. Yeah, we just talked about it from when she was little. Like it was something that I really wanted to drive home. And so I think for parents and specifically for parents that are dealing with self-injury, both moms and dads, I would say like resist the urge to to feel like you can discipline their way out of it. I do feel like there have to you do have to figure out your kid's healthy, right? Like isn't doing something that is really like going to jeopardize their life. But I think there is an urge to feel like I can get my kid to stop doing this. And I don't know that like, I could be wrong. Like maybe I'm saying something wrong, but I don't know that in those moments, like that there's anything I could have done besides physically restraining Katie, that when she was by herself, if she wanted to cut, like, I'm not sure there's anything I could have done that would have made her stop doing it. So I think parents need to like resist the urge to feel like they can control that and also to resist the urge to feel like the sense that they're doing something that is causing it. It could be that they are, that they have to examine what they're doing. But I think kids aren't always doing this because of my mom or because of my dad or because of my this. Those things may have influenced where they're at in that moment. But I'm not sure that Katie like ever cut in response to saying, my dad is making me this thing is like my dad. Even that time that she cut in response to a fight. The fight was the trigger, but Katie was cutting because that's the way she soothes herself. That's the way she deals with that. So I think it's hard for parents because you sometimes feel guilty. What did I do that put my kid in this situation? And I think if you think like that, that sometimes it can be hard to not try to feel like I can parent my way out of this. If I cause this, then I can parent my way out of this. It's not that easy. And the other thing I would say is seek out a professional. We're a Hispanic family. That is not always in our culture something that's real acceptable. Uh, but that medicine helps so much. I feel like if we would have gotten on it sooner, like so many things would have been different. I do too. I regret that as a parent. 
Because it's like a chemical imbalance, you know, sometimes. It's a medical thing, so that's kind of like the only way to solve it sometimes. Yeah, I remember a real specific conversation with Katie's stepdad. That he was like, you know, like, my sister's on medication and, like, the only thing they've ever done is up the dosage. She's never gotten off. And I let that influence me whether we should put Katie on medication. And I wish I hadn't. Because I think, Katie, we agree, like, if she had been on medication sooner. But I do think seeking out a professional... Don't have to be embarrassed. It's not something bad. It's a healthy, healthy thing. Your kid's emotional well-being, physical well-being is at stake. Forget about the cultural norms and all of those things. Seek out a professional. I think it's important. Those are all great things that you guys shared. Wow. Based on our conversation today about self-injury and your relationship and your experiences, what would you recommend to professionals like therapists, counselors, researchers? You first. I don't know. Like, I that's so think. hard. It's so hard <laughs> to like think in context of that. Especially us because we didn't have a lot of contact with, with therapists. I know we talk about them, but it was really like was only like a couple sessions, both of them. Yeah. I don't ever. The doctor helped a lot. Dr. Bernard. The do- our lot. doctor helped a lot. I always prepared Katie for going to the doctor, ask questions. And, and we always stayed in there together and asked to let him know what was going on. And he really said, hey, get on medication. You're going to get to your senior year and you're going to feel better. Your perspective on like what happens next and the unknown, it won't feel so abstract. You'll be able to handle it. Let's put you on medication. Let's see how you do. And yeah, he was really, really great pediatrician. But I will say that now I don't know if the first therapist that Katie went to knew about the self-harm. Oh, no, she must have because the, the judge found out. And the judge <laughs> is the reason like he made order counseling. I don't ever remember... Katie went to three counselors. I don't remember ever having a conversation with them where I felt like they had any sort of, forget expertise, any sort of knowledge about self-harm. It didn't feel like the therapy was geared towards overall emotional and physical well-being and self-harm. It just felt like therapy sessions. And I know that I never had a conversation with anybody about it hey, this is something you could read or this is a resource about self-harm. These are some things you might want to do like specifically regarding self-harm. So I think one thing I would tell professionals, if they're listening to this podcast, maybe they're just just getting their feet wet. But I would tell them like for adolescents today, it seems like they may encounter this, you know, sooner rather than later. It seems like an area that they should be paying a close attention to. I don't know therapists and I don't know their approach to therapy. No, but recommending like stuff to the parents makes sense because if they put their kids in therapy, obviously like they're someone involved. Right. And also like I thought about money and like having the therapist sit there and be like, so how is your day? Made me feel like, man, you're wasting my parents' money right now. (laughs) I wish you would have just asked me like, hey, like, did your, has your mom hit you? (laughs) Like, you know, I wish you would have been up front with me because sometimes I felt like, man, this lady is wasting my parents' money. Oh, that's interesting. Well, I was real defensive of my dad. <laughs> so maybe it was different. She's trying to protect my yeah. pocketbook. Nice. But I feel like they never really like, uh, I wish instead of like beating around the bush, they would have just asked me. I felt like it was all yeah. just like, like they were trying to play mind games on me and make me like draw pictures in the sand. Like just ask me what my mom did so we can figure it out. Just mm. ask me a question about it. You know? It's interesting. Yeah. What would you recommend to people with lived experience of self-injury? Both of you. I hope that more people who have self-injured can be can help to make it not a taboo conversation. Because I know that there are people who are uncomfortable talking about it, but I think I think it needs to be talked about. Anyone who is self-injured, not not anyone, I guess. I don't know everyone who is like self-harmed. It's something that matters to them or like something that they consider like an important event or milestone like in their life when that thing was happening. 
So it feels like to have like a whole, like your milestone of graduation, you talk about that, you know, like anniversaries or things like that, or just big things that happen in your life, not equating it. I think it's weird to have something that's so like important to like building up a person or like creating a person's personality and like just like not be able to talk about it to anyone. I hope that people who could like can talk about it more. Yeah. I think I would echo that to somebody that was is self-harming now. I think I would say like two things. One, talk to somebody about it. Friend, family member, like I think anybody you think that even cares about you slightly, right? Just share like, this is what I'm doing. Look, you're not going to be able to get me to stop, but I want you to know this is what I'm dealing with. Because I think that Katie talks about like being stuck in her own head and how that's not healthy for her. And I think having a conversation about what you're dealing with professionally, like if you can go to counseling, but even if it's not that, just talking to somebody about like what's happening. But I also think to press into the people that you know really care about you. Because I think sometimes Katie would want to protect me. She wouldn't always tell me when she was, even recently, when I say recently, in the last couple of years, if she was going through a hard time, I usually wouldn't find out about it until she was deep into it. So, and I think maybe she did that, maybe out of fear of disappointing me or decided to protect me. I'm not really sure. But I would say to somebody that is self-injuring, to press into the people that care about you, I think that they will be surprised at that they're not going to turn them off. They're not going to shun them. They're not going to like, they're going to want to love them, you know, and it might not necessarily be a parent, you know, like it might be an aunt or it might be an uncle, like it might be a grandma, but I would press into them because I think that if you can find a place where you feel like you are genuinely loved, there is a sense of hope. Katie and I would do this thing and she does it for me now as much as I do it for her when she was like in the middle of all of this cutting and then even like the thoughts of suicide, I would hug her and I would say like, Hey, everything's going to be okay. I don't know where we got it from. We still do it. Yeah. We still do it. And so now it's like, she does it to me. I do it to other people and they hate it, <laughs> but we do it. And it's good. Yeah. Like for us, it was really meaningful and I don't know why, but it was like really going through tough moments, both for me and for her. Just yeah. Those- oh, wait, tell, tell parents if they're going to hang out. We, we would play chess and read books and like listen to music but like none of that movie, just like walking stuff. Like you got to get them out of their head. Yeah. That's there was, a dangerous place. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We really did do a lot of active stuff where like it was a lot of conversation. and It's got to be something where they're like thinking or else, you know, if they're not using their brain, like their brain is going to go to bad place. Yeah. Yeah. But I think when they press into those people, I think those people will help them feel just a glimpse of hope. Not necessarily that they're going to stop self-harming, but that there is a future. The last thing, and again, I know this is about self-injury and it's not necessarily the same as suicide, but one of the things Katie and I would, would talk about, and I talk about this with my other daughter who's 13, is we can't make permanent decisions in response to temporary problems. And I think that suicide is the permanent decision. And it's not always easy to feel like the problems are temporary, but if you can figure out a way to say like, I'm just not going to make this permanent decision. I'm just going to like try to keep away from this permanent decision. You know, you fight as long as you can. You know, you fight as long as you can to preserve your life, to preserve your health, maybe to cut a little bit less. Maybe it's a little less often. Then you get to a point with Katie that it's 18 months ago. It's just a little bit of a fight. But yeah, press into the people that care about you. Like, I really think that's important because you don't have to do life alone. Even in the midst of that, you can do it through with other people that love you. What are you thinking of that when you say that? Are you thinking about these past couple of years? Or are you thinking about like high school? As far as what, pressing into the people you love? Yeah, like what is making you say that? Like you wish I would have done that? Or? No, I think you did that. Oh, I see. 
Yeah, I think you did that. Like you pressed into me because you felt like this is the person who like loves and cares about me no matter what. Mm-hmm. And I think I'm sure that our kids are self-harming that are insulating themselves from those people instead of pressing into them. They're not wanting to share, not wanting to allow them to love and allow them into this battle that you're struggling with. So I think there's a fear that they're, it might be really real. It may be that the parents found out that you're cutting and they responded the wrong way. It made you feel bad. So now you don't want to press into them. It's like, it might not be the parent, but like, if you have an aunt, they're not going to try to parent you. Most aunts don't, (laughs) you know, like press into that person so that you can feel that, that love. I'm sorry you're dealing with this, but I love you. I can't do anything for you. Like, but I love you, you know, feeling that, hearing that from people I think is important. Yeah. I think you did that. Mm-hmm. And and it's one of the things I think that, you know, helped when you were in adolescence. And so I just don't know if everybody does do that. You know, like I would assume that, that some do and some struggle with that a little bit more. Yeah, you probably know more about that than, than, than we do. And I guess last question for you, Katie, if either your dad or your mom, if they had responded to your self-injury in a way that wasn't helpful, it sounds like your mom had at least initially. I don't know if she has apologized, but if she did or if she had, do you think that would change things for you? Yeah. I've wanted to have a good relationship with her. And there have been times like I'm scared that, you know, as like Christians, we're not supposed to die like without forgiving everybody. And I'm like scared that I'm not going to be able to forgive her because she hasn't said sorry yet. She she won't talk about it. That's the reason we stopped talking. I said, hey, we need to talk about like what happened when, when I was living there, like when I was younger and I was cutting. And she wouldn't talk about it. We don't even have to talk about it. If she would apologize, I would be so happy. Like, I feel like I could forgive her. And then, like, I don't know. That's how we're supposed to, like, go as Christians, right? Forgiveness in the heart, right? Yeah, forgiveness can be important, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I feel like, I don't know. It's hard when I feel like she doesn't feel sorry. I ask that because what I've been doing a lot on the podcast, but also just in my clinical work working with families, is letting parents know that if they blew it, (laughs) Because they often do in response, like the first response. I mean, I don't know how you would have responded if she was living with you. Oh, no. Katie can tell you. There have been lots of times I blew it. No, I can't. No, (laughs) like that I apologize. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There have been times I had to do that. Parents don't, I think, think that they owe their kids an apology. Yeah. Yet their kids are also human beings, first and foremost. We all appreciate apologies. And so one thing that I that I know when parents, they sometimes can get discouraged when we're talking about what we'd recommend and like, oh, oh my goodness, I did that and I wasn't supposed to, or that wasn't helpful for my kid. Then they just withdraw or just up the discipline and try to, like you said, discipline well, it says, out of them. But it's okay to apologize mm-hmm. if you've blown it and have a do-over. So I, I highlight that again, and I've been adding it, you know, the last few podcast episodes just for people to hear it again and again, because I've seen the effects of a parent apologizing to their child, how they responded about their self-injury and it doing so much healing. And so I, uh, I love seeing that. Space. Well, thank you both for opening your hearts in kind of spontaneous conversation. Yeah, I want to thank you for opening up your personal lives and for people to hear what you have to say, I think are going to really benefit and feel hopeful at the end. So thanks, guys. Yeah, no, it was a really good experience. I'm glad you asked us. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I'm so happy. <laughs>
We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Psychology of Self-Injury podcast. If you have found this podcast helpful, please subscribe and please help others find us by giving us a five-star rating, writing a positive review, and or telling your friends and colleagues. It is not considered therapy or meant to be a replacement for therapy, so if you or someone you love is in crisis and needs to talk to someone, you can reach out to the Crisis Text Line, a global not-for-profit organization providing free mental health texting service through confidential crisis intervention by texting HOME to 741741. For all things psychology, follow me on Instagram and Twitter at DocWesters. For all things self-injury, follow IPSS on Facebook and Twitter at I-T-R-I-P-L-E-S. I'm Dr. Nicholas Westers. Thank you for listening to The Psychology of Self-Injury.